CD8. He'd expected spiders and dampness and possibly snakes, if nothing worse. Instead, there was just a dry, roughly square passageway leading slightly downwards. The air had a slightly salty smell, suggesting that somewhere in the tunnel was connected to the sea. Victor took a few paces along it and stopped. Hang on, he said. If the torch goes out, we could get horribly lost. No, we can't, said Gaspode. Sense of smell, see? Oh, gosh, that's clever. Victor went on a little further. The walls were covered with big versions of the square ideograms that featured in the book. You know, he said, pausing to run his fingers over one, these aren't really like a written language. It's more as if... Keep moving and stop making excuses, said Gaspode behind him. Victor's foot kicked against something which bounced away into the darkness. What was it? he quavered. Gaspode snuffled off into the darkness and returned. Don't worry about it, he said. Oh, it's just a skull. Whose? He didn't say, said Gaspode. Oh, shut up. Something crunched under Victor's sandal. And that, Gaspode began, I don't want to know. It was a seashell, in fact, said Gaspode. Victor peered into the moving square of darkness ahead of them. The makeshift torch flared in the draught, and if he strained his ears, he could hear a rhythmic sound. It was either a beast roaring in the distance, or the sound of the sea moving in some underground tunnel. He opted for the second suggestion. Something's been calling her, he said, in dreams. Someone that wants to be let out. I'm afraid she's going to get hurt. She's not worth it said Gaspode. Messing around with girls who are in the thrall to creatures from the void never works out, take my word for it. You'd never know what you were going to wake up next to. Gaspode! You'll see, I'm right. The torch went out. Victor waved it desperately and blew on it in a last attempt to rekindle it. A few sparks flared and faded. There simply wasn't enough torch left. The darkness flowed back. Victor had never known darkness like it. No matter how long you looked into it, your eyes wouldn't grow accustomed to it. There was nothing to become accustomed to. It was darkness and mother of darkness. Darkness absolute. The darkness under the earth. Darkness so dense as to be almost tangible, like cold velvet. It's bloody dark, volunteered Gaspode. I've broken out into what they call a cold sweat, thought Victor, so that's what it feels like. I'd always wondered... He eased himself sideways until he reached the wall. We'd better go back, he said, in what he hoped was a matter-of-fact voice. There could be anything ahead of us, ravines, or anything. We could get more torches and more people and, and, and come back. There was a flat sound from far down the passage. It was followed by a light so harsh that it projected the image of Victor's eyeballs on the back of his skull. It faded after a few seconds, but was still almost painfully bright. Laddie whimpered. There you are, said Gaspode hoarsely. You've got some light now, so everything's all right. Yes, but what's making it? I'm supposed to know, am I? Victor inched forward, his shadow dancing behind him. After a hundred yards or so, the passageway opened out in what had perhaps once been a natural cave. The light was coming from an arch high up at one end, but it was bright enough to reveal every detail. It was bigger even than the Great Hall at the University, and must once have been even more impressive. The light gleamed off baroque gold ornamentation, and on the stalactites that ribbed the roof. Stairs wide enough for a regiment rose from a wide, shadowy hole in the floor. A regular thud and boom, and a smell of salt said that the sea had found an entrance somewhere below. The air was clammy. Some kind of a temple, muttered Victor. Gaspode sniffed at a dark red drapery hung on one side of the entrance. At his touch it collapsed into a mess of slime. Ugh, he said. The whole place is mouldy. Something many-legged scuttled hastily across the floor and dropped into the stairwell. Victor reached out gingerly and prodded a thick red rope slung between gold-encrusted posts. It disintegrated. The cracked stairway carried on up to the distant lighted arch. They climbed it, scrambling over heaps of crumbling seaweed and driftwood flung up by some past high tide. The arch opened out into another vast cavern, like an amphitheatre. Rows of seats stretched down towards a... a wall? It shimmered like mercury. 
If you could fill an oblong pool of mercury the size of a house and then tip it up on its side without any of it spilling, then it would look something like this, only not so malevolent. It was flat and blank, but Victor suddenly felt he was being stared at like something under a lens. Laddie whined. Then Victor realised what it was that was making him uneasy. It wasn't a wall. A wall was attached to something. That thing was attached to nothing. It just hung in the air, billowing and rippling like an image in a mirror, but without the mirror. The light was coming from somewhere on the other side of it. Victor could see it now, a bright pinpoint moving around in the shadow at the far end of the chamber. He set off down the sloping aisle between the rows of stone seats, the dogs plodding along beside him with their ears flat and their tails between their legs. They waded through something that might once have been carpet. It tore wetly and disintegrated under their feet. After they'd gone a few yards, Gaspode said, I don't know if you've noticed, but some of... I know, said Victor grimly. The seats, they're still there. Uh, I know. Occupied. I know. All these people, these things who had been people, sitting in rows. It's as though they were watching a click. He'd almost reached it now. It shimmied above him, a rectangle with length and height but no thickness. Just in front of it, almost underneath the silver screen, a smaller flight of steps led him down into a circular pit half filled with debris. By climbing onto it, he could see behind the screen to where the light was. It was Ginger. She was standing with one hand held above her head. The torch in it burned like phosphorus. She was staring up at a body on a slab. It was a giant, or at least something like a giant. It might just have been a suit of armour with a sword laid on top of it, half buried in dust and sand. It's the thing from the book, he hissed. Ye gods, what does she think she's doing? I don't think she's thinking anything, said Gaspode. Ginger half turned and Victor saw her face. She was smiling. Behind the slab, Victor could make out some kind of big corroded disc. At least it was hanging from the ceiling by proper chains and not defying gravity in such a disconcerting way. Right, he said. I'm going to put a stop to this right now. Ginger! His voice boomed back at him from the distant walls. He could hear it bouncing away along caverns and corridors. Ginger, 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 Ginger. There was a thud of falling rock somewhere far behind him. Keep it quiet, said Gaspode. You'll have the old place down on us. Ginger, Victor hissed. It's me. She turned and looked at him, or through him, or into him. Victor, she said sweetly, go away, far away. Go away now, or great harm will befall. Great harm will befall, muttered Gaspode. That's boding talk, that is. You don't know what you're doing, said Victor. You asked me to stop you. Come back, come back with me now. He tried to climb up and something sank under his foot. There was a faraway gurgling noise, a metallic clonk, and then one watery musical note billowed up around him and echoed around the cavern. He moved his foot hurriedly, but only onto another part of the ledge, which sank like the first, producing a different note. Now there was a scraping sound as well. Victor had been standing in a small sunken pit. Now, to his horror, he realised that it was rising slowly to the accompaniment of the blaring notes and the whir and wheeze of ancient machinery. He thrust out his hands and hit a corroded lever, which produced a different chord and then snapped off. Laddie was howling. Victor saw Ginger drop her torch and clap her hands over her ears. A block of masonry leaned slowly out of a wall and smashed on the seats. Fragments of rock pattered down, and a rumbling counterpoint to the blare suggested that the noise was rearranging the shape of the whole cavern. And then it died, with a long, strangulated gurgle and a final gasp. A series of jerks and creaks indicated that whatever prehistoric machinery had been activated by Victor had given of its all before collapsing. Silence returned. Victor eased himself carefully out of the music pit, which was now several feet in the air, and ran over to Ginger. She was on her knees, sobbing. Come on, he said, let's get out of here. Where am I? What's happening? I couldn't even begin to explain. The torch was spluttering on the floor. It wasn't an actinic fire now. It was just a piece of charred and nearly extinguished driftwood. Victor grabbed it and waved it around until a dull yellow flame appeared. Gaspode, he snapped. 
Yeah? You two dogs lead the way. Oh, thank you very much. Ginger clung to him as they lurched back up the aisle. Despite the incipient terror, Victor had to admit that it was a very pleasant sensation. He looked around at the occasional occupants of the seats and shuddered. It looks as though they died watching a click, he said. Yeah, a comedy, said Gaspode, trotting ahead of him. Why did you say that? They're all grinning. Gaspode! Well, you got to look on the bright side, haven't you? sneered the dog. Can't go around being miserable just because you're in some lost underground tomb with a mad cat lover and a torch that's going to go out any minute. Keep going, keep going! They half fell, half ran down the steps, skidded unpleasantly on the seaweed at the bottom, and headed for the little archway that led to the wonderful prospect of living air and bright daylight. The torch was beginning to scorch Victor's hand. He let it go. At least there'd been no problems in the passage. If they kept to one wall and didn't do anything stupid, they couldn't help but reach the door. And it must be dawn by now, which meant that it shouldn't be long before they could see the light. Victor straightened up. This was pretty heroic, really. There hadn't been any monsters to fight, but probably even monsters would have rotted away centuries ago. Of course, it had been creepy, but really it was only, well, archaeology. Now it was all behind him, it didn't seem so bad at all. Laddie, who'd been running ahead of them, barked sharply. "'What's he saying?' said Victor. "'He's saying,' said Gaspode, "'that the tunnel's blocked.' "'Oh, no. It was probably your organ recital that did it.' Really blocked? Really blocked. Victor crawled over the heap. Several large roof slabs had come down, bringing tons of broken rock with them. He pulled and pushed at one or two pieces, but this produced only further falls. Perhaps there's another way out, he said. Perhaps you dogs could go and... Forget it, pal, said Gaspode. Anyway, the only other way out must be down those steps. They connect with the sea, right? All you have to do is swim down there and hope your lungs hold out. Laddie barked. "'Not you,' said Gaspode. "'I wasn't talking to you. "'Never volunteer for anything.' Victor continued his burrowing among the rocks. "'I don't know,' he said after a while, "'but it seems to me I can see a bit of light here. "'What do you think?' He heard Gaspode scramble over the stones. "'Could be, could be,' said the dog grudgingly. "'Looks like a couple of blocks have wedged up and left a space. "'Big enough for someone small to crawl through.' said Victor encouragingly. I knew you were going to say that, said Gaspode. Victor heard the scrabble of paws on loose rock. Eventually a muffled voice said, It, it opens up a bit. Tight squeeze here. Oh, blimey. There was silence. Gaspode, said Victor apprehensively. It's OK. I'm through. And I can see the door. Great. Victor felt the air move and there was a scratching noise. He reached out carefully, and his hand met a ferociously struggling hairy body. Laddie's trying to follow you. He's too big, he'll get stuck. There was a canine grunt, a frantic kicking which showered Victor with gravel, and a small bark of triumph. Oh, of course, he's a bit skinnier than me, said Gaspode after a while. Now you two run and fetch help, said Victor. Um, we'll wait here. He heard them disappear in the distance. Laddie's faraway barking indicated that they had reached the outside air. Victor sat back. Now all we have to do is wait, he said. We're in the hill, aren't we? said Ginger's voice in the darkness. Yes. How did we get here? I followed you. I told you to stop me. Yes, but then you tied me up. I did no such thing. You tied me up repeated Victor, and then you came here and opened the door and made a torch of some sort and went all the way into that... that place. I dread to think of what you'd have done if I hadn't woken you up. There was a pause. I really did all that? said Ginger, uncertainly. You really did. But I don't remember any of it. I believe you, but you still did it. What... what was that place, anyway? Victor shifted in the darkness, trying to make himself comfortable. I don't know, he confessed. At first I thought it was a temple, and it looked as though people used it for watching moving pictures. But it looked hundreds of years old. Thousands, I expect. But look, that can't be right, said Ginger in the small voice of one trying to be reasonable while madness is breaking down the door with a cleaver. 
The alchemists only got the idea a few months ago. Yes, it's something to think about. He reached out and found her. Her body was ramrod stiff and flinched at his touch. We're safe enough here, he said. Gaspode will soon bring back some help. Don't you worry about that. He tried not to think about the sea slapping at the stairs and the many-legged things that scuttled over the midnight floor. He tried to put out of his mind the thought of octopi slithering silently over the seats in front of that living, shifting screen. He tried to forget the patrons who had been sitting in the darkness while above them centuries passed. Perhaps they were waiting for the lady to come around with the banged grains and hot sausages. The whole of life is just like watching a click, he thought. Only it's as though you always get in ten minutes after the big picture has started, and no one will tell you the plot, so you have to work it all out by yourself from the clues. And you never, never get a chance to stay in your seat for the second house. Candlelight flickered in the university corridor. The bursar did not think of himself as a brave man. The most he felt happy about tackling was a column of numbers, and being good at numbers had taken him further up the hierarchy of unseen university than magic had ever done. But he couldn't let this pass. Whom, 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 whom. He crouched behind a pillar and counted eleven pellets. Little jets of sand puffed out of the bags. They were coming at two-minute intervals now. He ran to the heap of sandbags and tugged at them. Reality wasn't the same everywhere. Well, of course, every wizard knew that. Reality wasn't very thick anywhere on the Discworld. In some places it was very thin indeed. That was why magic worked. What Richtor thought he could measure was changes in reality, places where the real was rapidly becoming unreal, and every wizard knew what could happen if things became unreal enough to form a whole. But he thought as he clawed at the bags you'd need massive amounts of magic. We'd be bound to spot that amount of magic. It'd stand out like, like, well, like a lot of magic. I must have taken at least fifty seconds so far. He peered at the vase in its bunker. Oh, he'd been hoping he might be wrong. All the pellets had been expelled in one direction. Half a dozen sandbags had been shot full of holes. And numbers had thought that a couple of pellets in a month indicated a dangerous build-up of unreality. The bursar mentally drew a line from the vase through the damaged sandbags to the far end of the corridor. Whoom, whoom. He jerked back and then realised that there was no need to worry. All the pellets were being shot out of the ornamental elephant's head opposite him. He relaxed. Whoom! Whoom! The vase rocked violently as mysterious machinery swung around inside it. The bursar put his head closer to it. Yes, there was definitely a hissing sound like air being squeezed. Eleven pellets slammed at high speed into the sandbags. The vase recoiled back in accordance with the famous principle of reaction. Instead of hitting a sandbag, it hit the bursar. Ming! He blinked. He took a step backwards. He fell over. Because Holywood's disturbances in reality were extending weak but opportunist tendrils even as far as Ankh-Morpork, a couple of little bluebirds flew around his head for a moment and went, Tweet, 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 before vanishing. Gaspode lay on the sand and wheezed. Laddie danced around him, barking urgently. Oh, we're well out of that, he managed, and stood up and shook himself. Laddie barked and looked incredibly photogenic. All right, all right, sighed Gaspode. How about if we go and find some breakfast and maybe catch up on our sleep, and then we'll... Laddie barked again. Gaspode sighed. Oh, all right, he said. Have it your own way, but you won't get any thanks, you know. The dog whizzed away across the sand. Gaspode followed at a more leisurely ambling pace and was very surprised when Laddie doubled back, picked him up gently by the scruff of the neck and bounded off again. "'You're only doing this to me cos I'm small,' Gaspode complained as he swung from side to side. And, "'No, not that way. Humans won't be no good at this time of the morning. We want trolls. They'll still be up and about, and they're dab-addens at the underground stuff. Take the next right.' We want the blue Leas, and... Oh, bugger! It had suddenly dawned on him that he was going to be required to talk, and in public. You could spend ages carefully concealing your vocal abilities from people, and then, bingo, you were on the spot and you had to talk. Otherwise, young Victor and Catwoman would be mouldering down there forever. Young Laddie was going to drop him in front of someone and look expectant, and he'd have to explain.
and afterwards spend his whole life as some sort of freak. Laddie trotted up the street and into the smoky portals of the blue Lias, which was crowded. He threaded his way through a maze of tree-trunk legs to the bar, barked sharply, and dropped Gaspode on the floor. He looked expectant. The buzz of conversation stopped. "'It that laddie,' said a troll. "'What he want?' Gaspode wandered groggily to the nearest troll and tugged politely at a trailing strip of rusty chainmail. "'Scuse me,' he said. "'He bloody intelligent dog,' said another troll, idly kicking Gaspode aside. "'I see him in a click yesterday. He can play dead and count up to five. "'That two more than you can, then.' This got a round of laughter. By troll standards, this was Oscar Wilde at his best. "'No, shut up. I reckon,' said the first troll. "'He's trying to tell us something.' "'Skills me.' You've only got to look at the way he's leaping about and barking. That right, I saw him in this click. He's showing people where to find lost children in caves. Excuse me. A troll brow wrinkled. To eat him, you mean? No, to bring him outside. What, like for a barbecue sort of thing? Excuse me. Another foot caught Gaspode on the side of his bullet head. Could be he found some more. Look at the way he's running backwards and forwards to the door. He's one clever dog. We could go and look, said the first troll. Good idea. It seems like ages since I had my tea. Listen, you're not allowed to eat people in Hollywood. It'd get us a bad name. Also, Silicon Anti-Defamation League be down on you like a ton of rectangular building things. Yeah, it could be a reward or something. Excuse me. Right. Also, big improvement for troll image vis-a-vis public relations if we find lost children. And even if we don't, we can eat the dog, right? The bar emptied, leaving only the usual clouds of smoke, cauldrons of molten troll drinks, ruby idly scraping the congealed lava off the mugs, and a small weary moth-eaten dog. The small, weary, moth-eaten dog thought hard about the difference between looking and acting like a wonder dog and merely being one. It said, Booger. Victor remembered being frightened of tigers when he was young. In vain did people point out that the nearest tiger was 3,000 miles away. He'd say, Is there any sea between where they live and here? And people would say, Well, no, but... And he'd say, Then it's just a matter of distance. Darkness was the same thing. All dreadful dark places were connected by the nature of darkness itself. Darkness was everywhere, all the time, just waiting for the lights to go out. Just like the dungeon dimensions, really. Just waiting for reality to snap. He held on to Ginger. You needn't, she said. I've got a grip on myself now. Oh, um, good, he said weakly. The trouble is, so have you. He relaxed. "'Are you cold?' she said. "'A bit. It's very clammy down here.' "'Is it your teeth I can hear chattering?' "'Who else's?' "'No,' he added hurriedly. "'Don't even think about it.' "'You know,' she said after a while, "'I don't remember anything about tying you up. "'I'm not even very good at nuts.' "'These were pretty good,' said Victor. "'I just remember the dream.' There was this voice telling me that I must wake the sleeping man. Victor thought of the armoured figure on the slab. Did you get a good look at it, he said. What was it like? I don't know about tonight, said Ginger cautiously, but in my dreams it's always looked a bit like my Uncle Oswald. Victor thought of a sword taller than he was. You couldn't parry a slash from something like that. It had cut through anything. Somehow it was hard to think of anything looking like an Oswald with a sword like that. Why does he remind you of your Uncle Oswald, he said. Because my Uncle Oswald lay quite still like that. Mind you, I only ever saw him once, and that was at his funeral. Victor opened his mouth, and there were distant blurred voices. A few stones moved. A voice a little closer now trilled, Hello, little children! This way, little children. That's Rock, said Ginger. I'd know that voice anywhere, said Victor. Hey, Rock, it's me, Victor, 
There was a worried pause. Then Rock's voice bellowed, "'It my friend, Victor!' "'That mean we can't eat him?' "'No one is to eat my friend, Victor. "'We dig him out with speed.' There was the sound of crunching. Then another troll's voice complained, "'They call this limestone. "'I call it tasteless.' There was some more scrabbling. A third voice said, "'Don't see where we can't eat him. "'Who'd know?' "'You uncivilised troll,' scolded Rock. "'What you thinking of? "'You eat people, everyone laugh at you, say, "'He very defective troll, "'do not know how to behave in polite society "'and stop paying you three dollar a day "'and send you back to mountains.' Victor gave what he hoped would sound like a light chuckle. "'They're a lot of laughs, aren't they?' he said. "'Heaps,' said Ginger. "'Of course, all that stuff about eating people is just bravado. "'They hardly ever do it. "'You shouldn't worry about it.' "'I'm not. "'I'm worried because I walk around all the time when I'm asleep and I don't know why. "'You make it sound as if I was going to wake up that sleeping creature. "'It's a horrible thought. "'Something's inside my head.' "'There was a crash as more rocks were pulled aside.' "'That's the odd thing,' said Victor. "'When people are, um, possessed, the, um, possessing thing doesn't usually care much about them or anyone else. "'I mean, it wouldn't have just tied me up. It would have hit me over the head with something.' "'He reached for her hand in the dark. "'That thing on the slab,' he said. "'What about it?' "'I've seen it before. It's in the book I found. There's dozens of pictures of it. "'And they must have thought it was very important to keep it behind the gate. "'That's what the pictograms say, I think.' Gate, man, the man behind the gate. The prisoner, you see. I'm sure the reason why all the priests or whoever they were had to go and chant there every day was... A slab by his head was pulled aside and weak daylight poured through. It was very closely followed by Laddie, who tried to lick Victor's face and bark at the same time. Yes, yes, well done, Laddie, said Victor, trying to fight him off. Good dog, um, good boy, Laddie. Good boy, Laddie, good boy, Laddie. The bark brought several small shards of stone down from the ceiling. Aha, said Rock. Several other troll heads appeared behind him as Victor and Ginger stared out of the hole. They're not little children, muttered the one who had been complaining about the eating ban. They look stringy. "'I tell you before,' said Rock menacingly, "'no eating people. It caused no end of trouble.' "'Da, why not just one leg? Then everyone'll be—' Rock picked up a half-ton slab in one hand, weighed it thoughtfully, and then hit the other troll so hard with it that it broke. "'I tell you before,' he told the recumbent figure, "'it trolls like you getting us a bad name.' How can we take rightful place in brotherhood of sapient species with defective trolls like you let inside down all the time? He reached through the hole and pulled Victor out bodily. Thanks, Rock. Er, there's Ginger in there, too. Rock gave him a crafty nudge that bruised a couple of ribs. So I see, he said, as she wearing very pretty silk negligible. You find nice place to indulge in bit of what is the health of your parent? (laughs) "'And the disc move for you, yeah?' The other trolls grinned. "'Oh, um, yes, I suppose,' Victor began. "'That's not true at all,' snapped Ginger, as she was helped through the hole. "'We weren't—' "'Yes, it is,' said Victor, making furious signals with his hands and eyebrows. "'It's absolutely true. You're absolutely right, Rock.' "'Yeah,' said one of the trolls behind Rock. "'I seen them on the clicks, he kissing her and carrying her off the whole time.' "'Now listen,' Ginger began. "'And now we get out of here fast,' said Rock. "'This whole ceiling looked very defective to me. "'Could go at any time.' Victor glanced up. Several of the blocks were dipping ominously. "'You're right,' he said. He grabbed the arm of the protesting Ginger and hustled her along the passage. The trolls gathered up the fallen compatriot, who did not know how to behave in polite company, and plodded after them. "'That was disgusting, giving them the impression that—' Ginger hissed. "'Shut up!' snapped Victor. "'What did you want me to say, hmm? "'I mean, what sort of explanation do you think would fit? "'What would you like people to know?' she hesitated. "'Well, all right,' she conceded. "'But you could have thought of something else. "'You could have said we were exploring, or looking for fossils, or—' Her voice trailed off. Yes, in the middle of the night, 
with you in a silk negler jiggle, said Victor. What is a negler jiggle anyway? He meant negligee, said Ginger. Come on, let's get back to town. Afterwards I might just have time to have a couple of hours sleep. What do you mean, afterwards? We're going to have to buy these lads a big drink. There was a low rumble from the hill. A cloud of dust billowed out of the doorway and covered the trolls. The rest of the roof had gone. And that's it, said Victor. It's over. Can you make the sleepwalking part of you understand that? It's no good trying to get in any more. There isn't any way. It's buried. It's over. Thank goodness. There's a bar like it in every town. It's dimly lit, and the drinkers, although they talk, don't address their words to one another, and they don't listen either. They just talk the hurt inside. It's a bar for the derelict and the unlucky, and all of those people who have been temporarily flagged off the racetrack of life and into the pits. It always does a brisk trade. On this dawn the mourners sat ranged along the counter, each in his cloud of gloom, each certain that he was the most unfortunate individual in the whole world. I created it, said Silverfish morosely. I thought it would be educational. It could broaden people's horizons. I didn't intend for it to be a, 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 a show with a thousand elephants, he added nastily. Yeah, said Detritus, she don't know what she wants. I do what she want, then she say that not right. You a troll with no finer feeling. You do not understand what a girl wants. She say, girl wants sticky things to eat in box with bow round. I make box with bow round. She open box. She scream. She say flayed horse is not what she mean. She don't know what she wants. Yeah, said a voice from under Silverfish's stool. It'd serve em all right if I went off and joined the wolves. I mean, take this blown away thing, said Silverfish. It's not even real. It's not like things really were. It's just lies. Anyone can tell lies. Yeah, said Detritus. Like she say, girl wants music under window. I play music under window. Everyone in street wake up and shouting out of the house. You bad troll, what you hitting rocks this time of night? And she never even wake up. Yeah, said Silverfish. Yeah, said Detritus. Yeah, said the voice under the stool. The man who ran the bar was naturally cheerful. It wasn't hard to be cheerful, really, when your customers acted like lightning rods for any misery that happened to be floating around. He'd found that it wasn't a good idea to say things like, Never mind, look on the bright side, because there never was one. Or, Cheer up, it may never happen, because often it already had. All that was expected of him was to keep the drink coming. He was a little puzzled this morning, though. There seemed to be an extra person in the bar, quite apart from whoever it was was speaking up from the floor. He kept getting the feeling that he was serving an extra drink, and even getting paid for it, and even talking to the mysterious purchaser, but he couldn't see him. In fact, he wasn't quite sure what he was seeing, or who he was talking to. He wandered down to the far end of the bar. A glass slid towards him. Same again, said a voice out of the shadows. Er, uh, said the barman. Yep, er, uh, sure. What was it? Anything. The barman filled it with rum. It was pulled away. The barman sought for something to say. For some reason, he was feeling terrified. Don't see you in here much, he managed. I come for the atmosphere. Same again. Uh, working in Holywood, do you? said the barman, topping up the glass quickly. It vanished again. Not for some time. Same again, the barman hesitated. He was at heart a kindly soul. "'You don't think you've had enough, do you?' he said. "'I know exactly when I've had enough. <laughs> everyone says that, though. I know when everyone's had enough.' There was something very odd about that voice. The barman wasn't quite sure that he was hearing it with his ears. "'Ah, oh, well, <laughs> he said. "'Same again?' "'No. Busy day tomorrow.' 
Keep the change. A handful of coins slid across the counter. They felt icy cold, and most of them were heavily corroded. Oh, um... The barman began. The door opened and shut, letting in a cold blast of air despite the warmth of the night. The barman wiped the top of the bar in a distracted way, carefully avoiding the coins. "'You see some funny types running a bar,' he muttered. The voice by his ear said, "'I forgot. A packet of nuts, please.' Snow glittered on the rimward outriders of the Ramtop Mountains that great world-spanning range which, where it curves around the Circle Sea, forms a natural wall between Clatch and the great flat Stow Plains. It was the home of rogue glaciers and prowling avalanches and high, silent fields of snow. And yetis. Yetis are a high-altitude species of troll, and quite unaware that eating people is out of fashion. Their view is, if it moves, eat it. If it doesn't, then wait for it to move, and then eat it. They'd been listening all day to the sounds. Echoes had bounced from peak to peak along the frozen ranges until now it was a steady, dull rumble. "'My cousin,' said one of them, idly probing a hollow tooth with a claw, "'said they was enormous grey animals. Elephants.' "'Bigger than us,' said the other yeti. "'Nearly as bigger than us,' said the first yeti. "'Loads of them,' he said. "'More than he could count.' The second yeti sniffed the wind and appeared to consider this. "'Yeah, well,' he said gloomily, "'your cousin can't count above one.' "'He said there was lots of ones, "'big, fat, grey, elephants, "'all climbing, all roped together, big and slow, "'all carrying loads of ugra.' "'Oh!' The first yeti indicated the vast, sloping snowfield. Good and deep today, he said. Nothing's gonna move fast in this, right? We lie down in the snow. They won't see us till they're right on top of us. We panic em. It's Big Eats time. He waved his enormous paws in the air. Very heavy, my cousin said. They'll not move fast, you mark my words. The other yet he shrugged. Let's do it, he said, against the sound of distant, terrified trumpeting. They lay down in the snow, their white hides turning them into two unsuspicious mounds. It was a technique that had worked time and again, and had been handed down from yeti to yeti for thousands of years. Although it wasn't going to be handed much further. They waited. There was a distant bellowing as the herd approached. Eventually the first yeti said, very slowly, because it had been working this out for a long time, What do you get, right? What do you get if you cross... A mountain with an elephant. It never got an answer. The yetis had been right. When five hundred crude two-elephant bobsleighs crested the ridge ten feet away at sixty miles an hour, their strapped-on occupants trumpeting in panic, they never saw the yetis until they were right on top of them. Victor got only two hours sleep, but got up feeling remarkably refreshed and optimistic. It was all over. Things were going to be a whole lot better now. Ginger had been quite nice to him last night, well, a few hours ago, and whatever it was in the hill had been well and truly buried. You got that sort of thing sometimes, he thought, as he poured some water into the cracked basin and had a quick wash. Some wicked old king or wizard gets buried and their spirit creeps about, trying to put things right or something. Well-known effect. But now there must be a million tons of rock blocking the tunnel, and I can't see anyone doing any creeping through that. The unpleasantly alive screen surfaced briefly in his memory, but even that didn't seem so bad now. It had been dark in there, there had been lots of moving shadows, he had been wound up like a spring in any case, no wonder his eyes had played tricks on him. There had been the skeletons too, but even they now lacked the power to terrify. Victor had heard of tribal leaders up on the cold plains who'd be buried with whole armies of mounted horsemen so that their souls would live on in the next world. Maybe there was something like that here once. Yes, it all seemed much less horrifying in the cold light of day. And that's just what it was. Cold light. The room was full of the kind of light you got when you woke up on a winter's morning and knew by the light that it had snowed. It was a light without shadows. He went to the window and looked out on a pale silver glow. Holy wood 
had vanished. The visions of the night fountained up in his mind again as the darkness returns when the light goes out. Hang on, hang on, he thought, fighting the panic. It's only fog. You're bound to get fog sometimes, this close to the sea, and it's glowing like that because the sun's out. There's nothing occult about fog. It's just fine drops of water floating in the air. That's all it is. He dragged his clothes on and threw open the door to the passage and almost tripped over Gaspode, who had been lying full length in front of the door like the world's most unwashed draught excluder. The little dog raised himself unsteadily on his front paws, fixed Victor with a yellow eye and said, I just want you to know, all right, that I ain't lying in front of your door because of any of this loyal dog protecting his master nonsense, OK? It's just that when I got back here... Oh, shut up, Gaspode. Victor opened the outer door. Fog drifted in. It seemed to have an exploratory feel to it. It came in as if it had been waiting for just this opportunity. Fog's just fog, he said aloud. Come on, we're going to Ankh-Morpork today, remember? My head, said Gaspode. My head feels like the bottom of a cat's basket. You can sleep on the coach. I can sleep on the coach if it comes to that. He took a few steps into the silvery glow and was almost immediately lost. Buildings loomed vaguely at him in the thick, clammy air. Gaspode, he said hesitantly. Fog's just fog, he repeated, but it feels crowded. It feels like that if it suddenly went away, I'd see lots of people watching me, from outside. And that's ridiculous, because I am outside, so there's nothing outside of outside. And it's flickering. I expect you'll be wanting me to lead the way, said a smug voice by his knee. It's very quiet, isn't it, said Victor, trying to sound nonchalant. I expect it's the fog muffling everything. Of course, maybe ghastly creatures have come up out of the sea and murdered every mortal soul except us, said Gaspode conversationally. Shut up! Something loomed up out of the brightness. As it got closer, it got smaller, and the tentacles and antenna that Victor's imagination had been furnishing became the more or less ordinary arms and legs of Sol Dibbler. Victor, he said uncertainly. Sol? Sol's relief was visible. Can't see a thing in this stuff, he said. We thought you'd got lost. Come on, it's nearly noon. We're more or less ready to go. I'm ready. Good. Fog droplets had condensed on Sol's hair and clothing. Eh, he said, where are we exactly? Victor turned round. His lodgings had been behind him. The fog changes everything, doesn't it? said Sol unhappily. Uh, do you think your little dog can find his way to the studio? He seems quite bright. Growl, growl, said Gaspode, and sat up and begged in what Victor at least recognised as a sarcastic way. My word, said Sol, it's as if he understands, isn't it? Gaspode barked sharply. After a second or two, there was a barrage of excited answering barks. Of course, that'll be laddie, said Sol. What a clever dog! Gaspode looked smug. Mind you, that's laddie in a nutshell, said Sol, as they set off towards the barking. I expect he could teach your dog a few tricks, eh? Victor didn't dare look down. After a few false turns, the archway of Century of the Fruit Bat passed overhead like a ghost. There were more people here. The sight seemed to be filling up with lost wanderers who didn't know where else to go. There was a coach waiting outside Dibbler's office, and Dibbler himself stood beside it, stamping his feet. Come on, come on, he said. I've sent Gaffer ahead with a film. Get in, the pair of you. Can we travel in this? said Victor. What's to go wrong? said Dibbler. There's one road to Ankh-Morpork. Anyway, we'll probably be well out of this stuff when we leave the coast. I don't see why everyone's so nervy. Fog's fog. That's what I say, said Victor, climbing into the coach. It's just a mercy we finished blown away yesterday, said Dibbler. All this is probably just something seasonal. Nothing to worry about at all. You said that before, said Sol. You said it at least five times so far this morning. Ginger was hunched on one seat, with Laddie lying underneath it. Victor slid along until he was next to her. Did you get any sleep? he whispered. Just an hour or two, I think, she said. Nothing happened. No dream or anything. Victor relaxed. Then it's really over, he said. I wasn't sure. And the fog? she demanded. Sorry, said Victor guiltily. 
What's causing the fog? Well, said Victor, as I understand it, when cool air passes over warm ground, water is precipitated out of... You know what I mean. It's not like normal fog at all. It sort of drifts oddly, she finished lamely. And you can nearly hear voices, she added. You can't nearly hear voices, said Victor, in the hope that his own rational mind would believe him. You either hear them or you don't. Listen, we're both just tired, that's all it is. We've been working hard and um, not getting much sleep, so it's understandable that we think we're nearly hearing and seeing things. Oh, so you're nearly seeing things, are you? said Ginger triumphantly. And don't you go around using that calm and reasonable tone of voice on me, she added. I hate it when people go around being calm and reasonable at me. I hope you two lovebirds aren't having a tiff. Victor and Ginger stiffened. Dibbler clambered up into the opposite seat and leered encouragingly at them. Sol followed. There was a slam as the driver shut the carriage door. We'll stop for a meal when we're halfway, said Dibbler as they lurched forward. He hesitated and then sniffed suspiciously. What's that smell? he said. I'm afraid my dog is under your seat, said Victor. Is it ill? said Dibbler. I'm afraid it always smells like that. Don't you think it would be a good idea to give it a bath? A mutter on the edge of hearing said, Do you think it would be a good idea to have your feet bitten right off? Meanwhile, over Holywood, the fog thickened. The posters for Blown Away had been circulating in Ankh-Morpork for several days, and interest was running at fever pitch. They'd even got as far as the university this time. The librarian had one pinned up in the fetid, book-lined nest he called Home. Well, in fact, he called it Ook, but probably in translation it meant Home. And various others were surreptitiously circulating among the wizards themselves. The artist had produced a masterpiece. Held in Victor's arms against the background of the flaming city, Ginger was portrayed as not only showing nearly all she had, but quite a lot of what she had not, strictly speaking, got. The effect on the wizards was everything that Dibbler could possibly have hoped for. In the uncommon room, the poster was passed from hand to shaking hand, as if it might explode. Uh, there's a girl who's got it, said the chair of indefinite studies. He was one of the fattest wizards, and so overstuffed that he seemed to be living up to his title. He looked as though horsehair should be leaking from frayed patches. People felt an overpowering urge to rummage down the side of him for loose change. "'What's it, chair?' said another wizard. Uh, "'You know, it, oomph, the old way!' They watched him politely and expectantly, like people awaiting the punchline. "'Good grief! Do I have to spell it out?' he said. "'He means sexual magnetism,' said the lecturer in recent runes happily. "'The lure of wanton soft bosoms and huge pulsating thighs "'and, and the forbidden fruits of desire, which—' "'A couple of wizards carefully moved their chairs away from him. "'Ah, sex!' said the Dean of Pentacles, interrupting the lecturer in recent runes in mid-sigh. Far too much of it these days, in my opinion. Oh, I don't know, said the lecturer in recent runes. He looked wistful. The noise woke up Windle Poons, who had been dozing in his wheelchair by the fire. There was always a roaring fire in the uncommon room, summer or winter. Eh, what's that? he said. The Dean leaned towards an ear. "'I was saying,' he said loudly, "'that we didn't know the meaning of the word sex when we were young.' Oh, that's true. That's very true,' said Poons. "'He stared reflectively at the flames. "'Did we ever find out, do you remember?' "'There was a moment's silence. "'Say what you like, she's a fine figure of a woman,' "'said the lecturer in recent runes defiantly.' "'Several young women,' said the dean. "'Windle Poons focused unsteadily on the poster. "'Who's the young feller?' he said. "'What young fellow?' said several wizards. "'He's in the middle of the picture,' said Poons. "'He's holding her in his arms.' "'They looked again. "'Oh, oh him,' said the chair dismissively. 
Seems to me I've uh, seen him before, said Poons. My dear Poons, I hope you haven't been sneaking off to the moving pictures, said the Dean, grinning at the others. You know it's demeaning for a wizard to patronise the common entertainments. The Arch-Chancellor would be very angry with us. Eh, eh, what's that? said Poons, cupping a hand to his ear. It does look a bit familiar now that you mention it, said the Dean, peering at the poster. The lecturer in recent runes put his head on one side. It's young Victor, isn't it? he said. Eh? said Poons. <laughs> you know, he could be right, said the chair of indefinite studies. He had the same type of weedy moustache. Who's this? said Poons. But he was a student. He could have been a wizard, said Dean. Why would he want to go off and fondle young women? <laughs> it's Victor, all right, but not our Victor. Says here he's Victor Maraschino, said the chair. Oh, that's just a click name, said the lecturer in recent runes, airily. They all have funny names like that. Dolores de Sin and, and Blanche Languish and Rock Cliff and so on. He realised they were looking at him accusingly. Or, or, or so I'm told, he added lamely, by the, the, the porter. He goes to see a click nearly every night. What are you on about? said Poons, waving his walking stick in the air. Mm, the cook goes every night, too, said the chair. So do most of the kitchen staff. You'll just try getting so much as a ham sandwich after nine o'clock. Uh, just about everyone goes, said the lecturer. Mm, except us. One of the other wizards peered intently at the bottom of the poster. It says here, he said, a saga of passion and broad staircases... In Ark Morpork's turbulent history. Ah, it's historical then, is it? said the lecturer. And it says a epic love story that astounded goddess and men. Oh, religious as well. And it says with a thousand elephants. Ah. Wildlife. <laughs> Always very educational, wildlife, said the chair, looking speculatively at the dean. The other wizards were doing so too. Mm. It seems to me, said the lecturer slowly, that no one could possibly object to senior wizards viewing a work of historical, religious, and um, wildly florific interest. University rules are very specific, said the dean, but not very enthusiastically. But surely mm, only meant for the students, said the lecturer. I can quite understand that students shouldn't be allowed to watch something like this. They'd probably whistle and throw things at the screen. But it couldn't seriously be suggested, could it, that senior wizards such as ourselves shouldn't examine this mm, popular phenomenon? Poons's flailing walking stick caught the dean sharply across the back of his legs. Eh, I demand to know what everyone's talking about, he snapped. We don't see why senior wizards shouldn't be allowed to watch the moving pictures, bellowed the chair. Jolly good thing, too, snapped Poons. Everyone likes to look at a pretty woman. No one mentioned anything about any <laughs> pretty women. We were far more interested in examining popular phenomenons, said the chair. <laughs> Call it what you like, hmm? cackled Windlepoons. If people see wizards strolling out of the gate and going into a common moving picture pit, they'll lose all respect for the profession, said the dean. It's not even as if it's proper magic. It's just trickery. You know, said one of the lesser wizards thoughtfully, I've always wondered exactly what these wretched cliques are. Some kind of puppet show, are they? Are these people acting on a stage? Mm, or a shadow play? See, said the chair, we're supposed to be wise, and we don't even know. They all looked at the dean. 
Yes, but who wants to see a lot of young women dancing around in tights? He said, hopelessly. Ponder Stibbons, luckiest postgraduate wizard in the history of the university, sauntered happily towards the secret entrance over the wall. His otherwise uncrowded mind was pleasantly awash with thoughts of beer and maybe a visit to the cliques and maybe a clatchian extra-hot curry to round off the evening. And then it was the second worst moment of his life. They were all there, all the senior staff, even the dean, even old poons in his wheelchair, all standing there in the shadows, looking at him very sternly. Paranoia exploded its dark fireworks in the dustbin of his mind. They were all waiting just for him. He froze. The dean spoke. Oh, uh, mm, ah, mm, he began, and then seemed to catch up with his tongue. Oh, what's this, what's this? Forward this minute, that man? Ponder hesitated, then he ran for it. After a while, the lecturer in recent runes said, That was young Stibbons, wasn't it? Has he gone? I think so. He's bound to say something to someone. No, he won't, said the dean. Do you think he saw where we'd taken out the bricks? No, I was standing in front of the holes, said the chair. Come on, then, where were we? Look, I really think this is most unwise, said the dean. Just shut up, old chap, and hold this brick. Very well, but tell me this. How do you propose to get the wheelchair over? They looked at Poons's wheelchair. There are wheelchairs which are lightweight and built to let their owners function fully and independently in modern society. To the thing inhabited by Poons, they were as gazelles to a hippopotamus. Poons was well aware of his function in modern society, and as far as he was concerned, it was to be pushed everywhere and generally pandered to. It was wide and long and steered by means of a little front wheel and a long cast-iron handle. Cast iron, in fact, featured largely in its construction. Bits of baroque ironwork adorned its frame, which seemed to have been made of iron drain pipes welded together. The rear wheels did not, in fact, have blades affixed to them, but looked as though these were optional extras. There were various dread levers which only poons knew the purpose of. There was a huge oilskin hood that could be erected in a matter of hours to protect its occupant from showers, storms, and probably meteor strikes and falling buildings. By way of light relief, the front handle was adorned with a selection of trumpets, hooters and whistles, with which Poons was wont to announce his progress around the passages and quadrangles of the university. For the fact was that although the wheelchair needed all the efforts of one strong man to get it moving, it had, once actually locomotive, a sort of ponderous unstoppability. It may have had brakes, but Wendell Poons had never bothered to find out. Staff and students alike knew that the only hope of survival, if they heard a honk or blast at close range, was to flatten themselves against the nearest wall while the dreaded conveyance rattled by. "'We'll never get that over,' said the dean firmly. "'It must weigh at least a ton. "'We ought to leave him behind anyway. "'He's too old for this sort of thing.' "'When I was a lad, I was over this wall every night,' said Poons resentfully. He chuckled. We had some scrapes in those days, I can tell you. If I had a penny for every time the watch chased me home... His ancient lips moved in a sudden frenzy of calculation. I'd have uh, five pence halfpenny. Maybe if we... Um, the chair began and then said, What do you mean, five pence halfpenny? I recall once they gave up halfway, said Poons happily. Those were great times. I remember me and old numbers Richter and Tudgis Bold climbed up on the Temple of Small Gods, you see, in the middle of a service, and Tudgy had got this piglet in a sack, and he... See what you've done, complained the lecturer in recent rooms. You've set him off now. We could try lifting it by magic, said the chair. Gindle's effortless elevators should do the trick. And then the high priest turned round, and <laughs> the look on his face. <laughs> and then old numbers said, let's... It's hardly a very dignified use of magic, sniffed the dean.
"'Considerably more dignified than heaving the bloody thing over the wall ourselves, wouldn't you say?' "'said the lecturer in recent runes, rolling up his sleeves. "'Come on, lads. "'And next thing, Pimple was hammering on the door of the Assassin's Guild. "'And then, <laughs> old Scummidge, who was the porter there, <laughs> "'he was a right terror. "'Anyway, he came out, and then the guards came around the corner.' Already? Right. Which puts me in mind of the time me and Cucumber Framer got some glue <laughs> and went round to... Up your end, Dean, the wizards grunted with effort. And I can remember it as if it was only yesterday. The look on his face when... Now, lower away. The iron-shod wheels clanged gently on the cobbles of the alley. Poons nodded amiably. Great times, eh, great times, he muttered, and fell asleep. End of CD 8